Welcome to the Alliance Safety and Loss Control Podcast, dedicated to bringing you insightful tips and strategies to help mitigate risk and help promote worksite safety one episode at a time. Welcome. We want to thank you all for listening in to our podcast that is focused on technology trends and safety. I'm Christy Lloyd Zell with Alliant Risk Control Consulting. This is actually one of several presentations that Alliant is hosting for National Safety Month. As you all know, technology continues to advance at a really fast pace. And knowing what's on the market and having a strategy in place, implementing this technology into your overall safety program is really becoming more important than ever. So joining me today, we have three seasoned safety professionals, John Owen, Tim Leach, and Brady Dunn. John is joining us from Northern California. So John, I'll let you introduce yourself. Hey, this is John Owen. I'm an assistant vice president and a lead risk control consultant for Alliant Risk Control Consulting. I've got over 24 years of experience in safety consulting operations, as well as account management. I've been with Alliant for approximately four years, supporting our public entity specialty and tribal first accounts. I'm a certified industrial hygienist, as well as a certified safety professional. Tim's joining us from Southern California. Tim, go ahead yeah. and provide us a little background on yourself. I've been with Alliant for about 11 years. I'm the director of risk control consulting, oversee a national practice and consultants that work to me. So I lead a team. I'm a player coach, so I'm working with clients as well. I've got about 30 years of experience in the industry a lot of which has been primarily been in the insurance brokerage industry, but have private industry experience as well. Certified safety professional, associate in risk management, and then I'm also an OSHA outsource trainer as well. Brady Dunn is joining us from North of West team up in Oregon. Brady, if you could fill us in on your background as well. I'm the vice president and regional director for Alliance Specialty Risk Control Department. I've uh, been with Alliance for about three years now. I work mostly in our commercial insurance services, vertical markets that I, that I mostly work in as hospitality, real estate, aviation, agriculture, and financial services. I've been in the industry for about 23 years. Great. Thank you, gentlemen. Let's go ahead and get started. One of the areas of safety that's gained a lot of traction and the attention of the safety directors is the implementation of wearable devices. So we're not talking about safety glasses or hearing protection, but devices that are designed to measure worker output or essentially to lower strain and repetitive injuries. Freddie, I understand you have had some experience with the exoskeletons. Can you kind of fill us in on your opinion of these devices and do they really help prevent injury? You know, I have had quite a bit of experience with exoskeletons. We've got clients that have use these devices. We've got clients that have evaluated them and have chose to, to not use them. And, and I say that because they're not for everybody and they're not for every industry. Exoskeletons have been around for quite a few years. And they've really been gaining traction as of lately in the safety world. And they're really used in an effort to reduce lifting and repetitive motion injuries. They're really beneficial in, in areas like construction, manufacturing. We've seen them used with our clients in the medical side to prevent patient lifting injuries and those types of strains. And they really got some really good popularity with companies like Ford that used them several years ago and really was, I guess, the pilot for the use for them in manufacturing in general. Toyota has implemented them on their production lines. And then Boeing in the military also use exoskeletons 
with, and if you look at the studies around those, they've really had good results in reducing strain injuries and, and like I said, mostly on production lines. Also, the use of devices have shown to improve productivity, right, which is always of interest to companies as they're looking at their production efforts and ways to improve production. Specifically talking about clients that I've seen use these devices. I've got an aircraft manufacturing client up in Idaho that makes a metal aircraft and, and, and everything in this aircraft is fastened by rivets. And so as you can imagine, there's these large rivets uh, guns that probably weigh between five and eight pounds, depending upon the size of the rivet that's being used. And these employees that are using the rivet guns are there for eight hours a day. And, and they're riveting these, these wings and whole assemblies that are located in jigs. It's a very intricate process, and it has to be done with some very fine detail. And so these devices they're using are heavy. The employees have to get into awkward positions. And these clients really have some significant exposures to strain injuries in the upper torso area, shoulders, necks, upper backs. And so we've, we've always looked for solutions to address those exposures. And the way that they really work is, is they provide a mechanical advantage that provides a lift support through an electronically controlled tension application. And that tension control can be adjusted for different range of motion. So like in the case of Ford and Toyota, if you read some of those studies, the assembly lines as they're working on chassis, they're using these devices overhead. And so they can adjust the mechanical advantage for anything shoulder level and above. And for our client that we've had, it was really something that was specific to right at shoulder level and a little bit below. So the adjustability of these devices is pretty significant. They can attach together. So when you look at some of the companies that provide these, they have shoulder devices. Some companies offer back devices. There's even companies that offer leg support. So if you're doing a lot of bending, picking up items off the floor, there's devices that are specific for that type of an exposure. And what's neat about this industry is lately they've really been coming up with ways to attach them together. So if I'm a production line employee and I've got shoulder exposures and back exposures, you can connect these devices so that you can wear them simultaneously. And it's really been a really significant improvement in the industry in general on just how these devices can be used. Now, I will say that they're not for everybody. There's still a long ways to go with the technology to make them smaller, to make them a little more adjustable. We've had clients in the air med industry that have evaluated them for patient transfers inside of helicopters and fixed wing aircraft. And just due to the, the constraints that are in those areas, an exoskeleton, while the technology would be very beneficial, just given the size of, of the area that they work in, it just doesn't make sense to adopt that technology until we see those things get a little bit smaller and a little more adjustable. So exoskeletons have, have been a good tool for some of our clients that have those exposures, and we really recommend them for, for that type of injury prevention. Brady, one of the things I wanted to, to ask you about with regard to the exoskeletons, and sometimes when we implement new systems or procedures with regard to safety, you find a transference of injuries in other areas. Have you seen that with the use of exoskeletons where it's taken care of one issue but created another as a result of their use? 
In the clients that I've seen implement them, I haven't really seen that because it's specifically targeting an area that they're they're having significant challenges with. And, and with my my aviation client, they were they were really looking for a way to reduce those shoulder injuries. And so the use of that mechanical advantage and the reducing the amount of weight that they have to hold as they're using those tools really has had a pretty significant impact. But I haven't seen that really transfer to other areas of risk. So luckily, no, I, I haven't seen that exposure. You know, one of the other areas that, that I wanted to mention was panic buttons. So we're shifting industries, so to speak. You know, we're seeing a lot of different municipalities across the country. And, and you guys may have seen this, you know, also being in California, but places like San Diego, Chicago, there's some areas outside of Chicago that have adopted this or required this. Same thing with Florida. You have a significant exposure for housekeepers. And what they're trying to prevent with these panic buttons is, you know, sexual assault. If a housekeeper goes into a, a room to clean, if there's somebody inside the room or shows up as the housekeeper is cleaning that room, there's a significant exposure and, and track record of sexual assault and sexual abuse for housekeepers. And so this has been known in the industry for, for many, many years. And so there, about five or six years ago, there was companies that started really addressing this. And one of the items that came out of that was the use of panic buttons. These devices hang on a lanyard. Housekeepers can, can wear them. And if they get into a situation that they're not comfortable with, they can hit that button. And then based off of GPS tracking and, and alarming, that will send a notice to the front desk. It'll send a notice to maybe a security person who's working on site. And they know that they can then respond to that area because they know where the housekeeper is at because of the GPS and they can intervene and they can solve that problem. As we see more municipalities require these, it's a technology that's really taken off and, and really is becoming more widely used in areas even where it's not required. I've got a hotel client that has a property in Chicago and they implemented it in Chicago because of the mandate, but then they, they found how beneficial it was and they decided to implement it across all their hotel properties. So it's something that I think is a new trend and is fairly new to that industry. But I believe over the next couple of years, we're really going to see that take off. And from a regulatory standpoint, it's going to get more prevalent. But then also companies are just going to do the right thing and really start protecting those employees from those types of exposures. Those types of devices are very cool. And it's kind of a new thing that's happening in that industry. So, John, I understand your industrial hygiene background. I'm sure you've seen some wearable devices in your area as well. Now, do you have any thoughts on wearables as it relates to, to industrial hygiene? I mean, industrial hygiene is all about the, the recognition, really the evaluation is a heavy emphasis in industrial hygiene, obviously of control of the workplace hazards. And in the area of evaluation, those of you that are familiar with employee exposure monitoring, it could be everything from noise to a chemical exposure. And where sensor technology has really started to make uh, huge strides is really because the technology itself has advanced dramatically, including the really what I would call connected devices. So now in the field, when it comes to evaluating and, and really getting both real-time data that can, can be utilized to make actions in the field based upon an exposure an employee is having, you also have the ability to take that data and over time model 
and, and evaluate both the, the types of concentrations of exposure, for example, an employee might be having, but you can also model that against the type of controls you're using. You're seeing if the changes in controls are actually having an effect on the exposure through real-time monitoring. So these devices and the fact that they're connected through sensor technology and the sensors themselves can really be designed around the whole aspect of exposure types. Let me give you an example. So very common in, in laboratories that use hoods, the hoods are used, of course, to protect the employee from the chemicals inside the hood. And many times what happens is that the exposure is based upon the flow rate of the hood. And what can, sensors can do is they can actually detect not only that there is a flow issue occurring, but it can alert in real time to, say, a facilities or a maintenance team through a software system and the connected sensor devices that allows them to be able to take action on that hood immediately and even notify the user of this specific activity. So that's just kind of one example. Another area that's really been utilizing this type of technology is in the construction industry. And a couple examples of that are on the dust side. So you can do both personal monitoring. So you could be an employee, could be hooked up with a sensor. That sensor can be connected to devices through wireless technology. And you can be obtaining both real-time information on the levels of exposure. And again, it can alert both the supervisor or the employee to the exposure. But maybe you're at multiple sites as a supervisor. It can give you some real-time feedback, even the site you're not at. Same might go for welding operations and so on. So the sensor capabilities has really been the, the driving factor here. In addition to that, there's even advances in the physiological data. So let's say you have a work crew that's working outside in, in hot temperatures. You can not only monitor, of course, in real time, the, the weather act activities and what the temperature and humidity and so on is doing, but you can even measure in real time the physiological data from the employees, heart rate respiration rates, and a number of factors that really tie into a system that becomes much smarter at what it's doing in alerting both the employee and the management team as to what's happening. And lastly, I want to hit on is kind of an interesting one that's been used more and more is using sensor devices within personal protective equipment. So for example, there are hard hat technology where the sensor can be placed in a hard hat. And the purpose of the hard hat sensor is actually to sense proximity to heavy equipment. So you have someone in a hard hat, then when there is an approaching piece of equipment that also is sensor-based, it will actually alert the users the fact that there is a proximity concern. Just like you might see with, with aircraft, for example, and proximity alerts, it's very similar technology and consideration. So there's a lot happening, and really it comes down to really what's going to match best to the exposures. But the great news is the advancements have made it much better to be able to both identify where you might be seeing exposures occurring and alert employees and capture that data in real time and use that data for decision-making and evaluation of controls. Another area I think it's really been advancing is in the area of transportation. And Tim, from your experience with transportation, what are you seeing as some of the key trends taking place there? I think any of us that drive a vehicle that's maybe less than 10 years old has started to experience different technological advancements in vehicle safety, you know, just backup cameras, for example. And other things, uh, identification is when the maintenance is due and things of that nature. But from my standpoint, what I think is the best type of technology, and that's what 
when it integrates systems to the point that it's ease of use and that it marries when, since we're talking about safety, it integrates safety items with functional operational issues. And where I'm going at is with telemetrics. There's a couple companies out there that kind of stand out because I've had a little bit of experience with them. That's Smart Drive and then the other one's Lydix. It used to be, used to be DriveCam. I believe when they started, they really were focused on kind of the safety aspect of things, but they, they over the years have evolved to get into the other areas of telemetrics where not only is it GPS censoring as far as identification where, where an operator might be, but it's also monitoring acceleration, deceleration, if there's impact, if the driver's doing something that distracts them from, the, from driving the vehicle, such as using a cell phone or even nodding off and falling asleep, that the technology comes into play. It, what it does, though, with regard to kind of some of the more just basic rudimentary metrics is it does things like it helps improve fuel efficiency. It helps to optimize maintenance schedules on the operational side. But on the safety side, you can use the video that's created and they can take that data and they can use it in a coaching model. We've talked about behavioral safety on the occupational safety side for a long time, but this is really the first opportunity that you have to take a a visual in a in someone in a vehicle that has no one supervising them for the most part as far as they're out there on their own to take information from that and then to go back with the operator and say hey look you know you're violating our cell phone policy or you're not wearing your seatbelt or you know you're driving at an excessive speed or or whatever the thing that they're doing is so that you can coach your drivers to get in front of them to prevent losses and so it's been really effective and the operational side has helped to sell the safety the aspect the one thing that I would caution, not just with the telemetrics technology, but other technology, the tool's only good is its use. I've got a client that I've had worked with. It's a large logistics organization with many different centers, and they have this safety telemetrics technology in their vehicles, but when they get the data, they don't do anything with it. So a sense, in a sense, when it comes to that, it really becomes just they're basically pouring money after nothing because technology alone is not going to control or help you reduce losses or risk to employees or to prevent accidents. So you want to make sure that, hey, look, if you're using it, make sure the data is relative to what you're measuring, that management is in agreement with it, and that they're driving it, no pun intended. And that's when it really becomes a, an effective tool. I know that Christy also, Christy, you've worked with some organizations, I believe, with some telemetrics. Is there anything that you'd want to add to what I just shared? No, I think you hit a lot of it right on the head there. I think the biggest issue I see is successful companies go above and beyond. They don't just simply implement a telemetric program. They really integrate it into their overall safety program. They've got it something in place. They need to go above and beyond. Go for the driver's scorecard. Make it so there's a system of evaluating your drivers. And again, report is only good as the information that it's going to spit out. Is it useful information? Can you take action with that data you just received? Or is it just great? Here's my report. What am I going to do with it? The other thing I don't know if you mentioned, Tim, was the in-cab smart cameras. And you mentioned, you know, it does notify whether drivers are dozing off or if they're reaching over for something on the floor or anywhere else where they shouldn't be, as opposed to right in front and center. So I think the problem with these cameras, and if you want to call it a problem, is some of the drivers feel that Big Brother's watching them. 
if you present it right, I think you can kind of sway your drivers in the direction you want them. Let them know, look, we're not sitting here watching the cameras all day. It's basically for a trigger event. And so if a trigger event occurs, that's the only time we're going to go back and be watching. We're not sitting here all day looking at you driving all day. Yeah. Again, these programs can be very useful and help. And I think these successful companies that have done well with these have really made it into a program as opposed to just an isolated piece of their safety. And they're not without their flaws either. I was with a friend of mine going to bicycle race here a few weeks ago, and he's like, man, I love this variable cruise control. Basically adjusts the cruise control with the traffic. Well, if you have somebody that basically comes and cuts off, I mean, it basically slams on the, the brakes almost, where it just basically decelerates really fast, which can create an issue as well. We want to make sure that we're not too complacent with it. You know, of course, the Tesla, jumping in the Tesla, plugging in the, the address, and it basically takes you to where you need to go. So you want to make sure that you're not being complacent. And again, just understand that the data is great if you implement it. Another area I just wanted to touch upon, and I think Brady is in a better position to, to maybe address it, but in the property area of loss control, we think of property, oftentimes we think of fire and fire loss, but quite honestly, water is a bigger issue from the standpoint of where we experience losses in properties. And there's quite a bit of technology out there with regard to leak detection and so on and so forth. And I know that I don't have any clients that I know that, it, that I'm sure there's clients using it, but I haven't been involved in that. But I know, Brady, you mentioned earlier that you had some clients that were using the leak detection and some of the other technology with regard to, to managing their property risk. Do you want to comment on those? Just to set the stage, yeah, I was recently in a claim review for a client and we were going through the property claims and, and it seemed like over half of the claims that we were reviewing were water leak claims, whether it be because of a storm come through and window penetration or, but the majority of those that we saw were due to human element issues, overflowing bathtubs or toilets or things, you know, hot water heater gives way and it leaks for a couple of weeks and it's a slow leak and there's water damage not only in that unit, but maybe units below, depending on how significant the leak is. And then you have sprinkler systems. I mean, the majority of our clients that are in manufacturing or multifamily or hotels, right, they've got sprinkler systems. So in winter months, those sprinkler pipes, they have a tendency to freeze, especially in areas like portico shares or attics. And it's a real significant issue. There's a lot of technology. It's been around for a while. Some of it has, but just like any technology, it improves over time. We work with our clients quite a bit to identify, does it make sense to have some leak detection technology built into the building? Not only when they're being built for the first time in new construction, but also if you have an older building, let's say, that has older pipes or has an older hot water heater system, those are great candidates for looking at this technology that can help identify those leaks before they become more significant issues. There's a lot of companies out there that the technology has improved so much that you could have electronic notification. So if the device sitting at the base of a hot water heater picks up any moisture whatsoever, it'll send a notice, to either a text message or an email to the maintenance department or the general manager of the hotel so that they can respond before those things become significant issues. 
that technology is really making some significant strides. One of the, the challenges with that is the cost. And in the hotel world, as we all know, has been hit really hard with the pandemic. A lot of hotel companies aren't even back up to 50% occupancy rate yet. The cost of these devices to set up an entire hotel can be fairly expensive. I've got a client up in New England that, that implemented this a couple of years ago. It's a maybe 150-room hotel, just a, a normal box hotel, nothing too extravagant, and the cost was about $20,000. So, And then you have an ongoing monitoring fee of a couple thousand dollars. They can be expensive. But I will say, that, and this is specifically about sprinkler system monitoring, this client has, and what we've evaluated, really prevented two water damage claims from having that system in place. So if you think about you know, how much of a retention a client takes on their insurance program on a property policy, if they take a $25,000 deductible, two claims, you, you may be at $50,000. Know, you just have to look at that from a cost-benefit perspective and, and really make your own decisions. But that technology is, is really you know, saving property claims, saving mold claims. Um, you know, I just was recently reading where there was a lawsuit from an apartment complex for $45 million. Tenant had sued the ownership because she had a, a mold exposure, which caused significant health concerns and, and issues for her. But the award was just tremendous, right? $45 million is just crazy. So these types of devices can help prevent those types of exposures. We definitely recommend a full evaluation of those. Some came to mind when, when you were talking about, and I think it's it's important to bring it out, is the utilization of thermography or infrared. Basically, you're looking at electrical systems. Most of the time, you're looking at electrical systems, but they can also be used from uh, looking at roof maintenance and, and uh, moisture and things of that nature. But it is the best way that you can identify in a pre-law standpoint any potential for electrical issues that may result in fire or system interruption or what have you. And we use that quite a bit. And it, it really is something that should be considered in a property conservation program. That's a great point. And you, I mean, you guys all know this too. I mean, you look back seven, eight years ago, the cost of a thermal scanner was significant, right? I mean, you would spend mentry models, $5,000. If you go back that far, but you can get a thermal scanner now for a couple hundred bucks. I mean, just the availability of those, there's no reason why a maintenance person at a property should not have that at their disposal. That's just a great point. John, I know on the ventilation side, right, there's technology systems, especially in the world of COVID and the regulations that have come out for air changing and, and air quality. What's your experience with technology as it relates to that? It's all about sensor technology and ultimately those connected capabilities. I'll give you a practical example. Just pretty recently, I had to change out my home air conditioning system. And if any of you haven't done that in a while, it was quite interesting. When they installed the new one, I didn't even get a chance at the old analog controller on the wall. Everything now is digital and everything is wireless. And not only that, but it came with multiple sensors that I could place anywhere in my house and it could measure the temperature and make decisions against the management of the air conditioning system for my home based on that. So if you see that in residential today, what you're seeing in commercial even goes beyond that. There are some significant systems that are in place today that not only you can place sensors within the ductwork or within the locations and you can monitor for their traditional comfort levels, carbon dioxide, temperature, humidity, 
But they even now have volatile organic compound sensors or other sensors that may be of concern based on the operation that can actually be placed within the ventilation system and not only alert of the concern of those constituents, but also allows for automated adjustment. So I'll use an example. Wildfire smoke is an example of that, right? When we get a lot of bad wildfires here in California and you get the smoke that might come in, well, the last thing you want to do is bring it into the building. So there's technology now that's being advanced, and I've started to read about some of this. It's going to tie back into the air quality index capabilities and allow for more automation through the sensors of what to do with the ventilation systems and buildings. So kind of keep your eye out because those technologies are continuing to improve. And not only will it make it more comfortable, but you can even set up based on your business and the parameters to start tying that into more automation and management of that ventilation system for efficiency, but also for the management of the air constituents and safety of your occupants. John, you mentioned wildfire smoke. That's an interesting point because we got a client in Napa that during the Napa fires a couple of years ago, they had significant claim, not a lot of property damage, a little bit, but what the biggest issue was, was smoke damage. So they had to change out linens and carpets and repaint walls. I mean, it was obviously a lot of smoke in that fire and they were right in the middle of it. But that technology, just for wildfires alone, as we see those increasing across the Pacific Northwest, it's a fantastic point. Thank you, gentlemen, for your insight today into this ever-evolving area of technology and safety. If you want to get in contact with us, you may at riskcontrolatalliant.com. We hope you'll join us for more of our podcasts during National Safety Month. Thank you for listening. And for more information, go to www.alliant.com.